Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. Welcome back. Today in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. In this section, Mark's going to tell us five stories in which Jesus clashes with the religious authorities. In each one of these stories, Jesus is going to supersede or go beyond what the, the Torah, or at least the tradition of the elders and their understanding is. Now, in these stories, the opposition of Jesus is going to increase. First, we're going to note that the Pharisees and religious leaders are going to have silence towards Jesus, and they're going to question in their own hearts. Then they're going to begin questioning Jesus, but first off, they question Jesus by asking about his disciples, and then they're going to question Jesus by going to the disciples and say, what about Jesus doing this? And then the opposition to Jesus is going to increase, to the point in which, by the time we get to chapter 3, the Pharisees and religious leaders are going to actually seek to destroy Jesus. Now, this is going to be an important principle when you're understanding the Bible, and in particular the Gospels. We, we tend to think of the Gospels as the historical books that uh, uh, flow as we expect it to flow, namely that uh, it's going to be in chronological order, that this event happened before that event, which happened before that event, etc., uh, etc. Et but what we're going to notice is that Mark's going to front his Gospel with this opposition of, uh, to, to Jesus by the religious leaders. Mark's going to give us these five episodes or five stories which Mark has put them all together. And and these stories may have happened over the course of who knows how long. But Mark is going to do that intentionally to say, from the very beginning now, we're going to note that as these religious leaders are confronted with Jesus, their opposition to him is going to grow and grow and grow to the point at which they want to kill him. So they may not have actually happened in this particular order in terms of uh, all happening at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but Mark's going to front us with that. Now, remember last time, we know that there's two keys to the Gospel of Mark. The first is going to be who Jesus is. We, the readers, know from the very beginning. Marcus told us from the very introduction that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, we're going to watch Jesus be uh, introduced to other various peoples. As we mentioned before, the disciples are going to be confronted in chapter 4 with who Jesus is, and he's going to calm the wind and the, the storm, and they're going to respond by going, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The demons, of course, know who he is from chapter 1. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And now we're going to see how the the religious leaders are confronted with Jesus and they're going to begin to question with who he is. But their answer is going to be that we don't like this person. We don't don't like who he is. We don't like the message he's presenting. He's not presenting a message or a kingdom that appeals to our desires, to our wants, and to our needs. We believe that Rome's the enemy and we want him to overthrow Rome. And after all, he's he's conflicting with us and challenging our, our, our beliefs. Now, the second key to who Jesus is, of course, is going to be what does it mean to be a disciple? We're going to see all we've seen already in chapter one that discipleship is being defined as following Jesus. The other element, of course, is going to be being with Jesus, being with him and following him. So let's continue now. Chapter two, verse one. When he come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there were no longer any room, even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. After they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, 
said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up, his, up the pallet and went out in the sight of all. So that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the multitudes were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, the opposition to Jesus is going to be uh, with this, this particular miracle. What's interesting is the crowds come to Jesus, and they're so great that um, these men had to dig a hole in the roof and lower the paralyzed man down on the mat. Now, what's interesting first about this story is it says that Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the men who lowered the paralyzed man down into the roof. And then he responds by saying, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this often presents a, a, a problem for many of us when we read the, the, this particular story in, in terms of our Western worldview and our Western perspective. Our Western perspective says, well, how could Jesus forgive this man's sins by seeing their faith? After all, if he's forgiving their, his sins, uh, the idea of his forgiving his sins usually means for us that this man is being saved. How could it happen as a result of their faith? But if we understand this in the context of this bigger story that's going on, we talked the last couple of times now that the story that's going on is a story of exile and restoration. The people of Israel and at the close of the Old Testament have been living in exile. God had sent them out of the land. And we have already looked at the fact that if God's going to restore them to this land and be faithful to all the promises that he's made to Israel and Abraham and Moses and David and, and, and all the prophets, in order for him to restore them to this land, the people of Israel must repent. Repentance is necessary for the beginning of the restoration. And the beginning of the restoration, in Jesus' words, is that the kingdom of God is at hand. So evidence that the kingdom of God is at hand is these men having faith. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, it probably shouldn't be understood as the, his particular sins that have caused him to be a, 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 not a, a child of God. And, and now he's being forgiven as though he's being personally saved. But it's the sins of the nation that have led the nation into exile. And a sign of the restoration from the exile, of course, is healing. That the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God and he's also doing the kingdom of God. And if the kingdom of God is this great restoration that God has promised uh, to his people Israel, included in that restoration is the healing uh, of various diseases. Now, the Pharisees and scribes, uh, teachers of the law, began grumbling amongst themselves. And note that they were grumbling amongst themselves, meaning they were reasoning in their hearts, it says in verse 6. Um, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. After all, who can forgive sins but God alone? The Jewish tradition is that only God can forgive sins from the book of Exodus and the book of Psalms and Isaiah as well. And blasphemy, claiming to be God, was a sin punishable by death. But Jesus, of course, knows what they're thinking. And he responds to the men by saying, what is easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. Now, the answer actually is that your sins are forgiven. And the reason for that is, is because there's no way to prove that he actually did it. 
he can say your sins are forgiven and there's no way to prove that, that that actually occurred. But to say, take up your mat and walk means that he must actually be able to do the miracle. So Jesus has done the easier thing first, the easier thing in their eyes anyways, by saying your sins are forgiven. But in order to confirm that Jesus is actually able to do the easier thing, he now goes on to do the harder thing. And that is, take up your mat and walk. And the man rose immediately, took up the pallet, and went out of the sight of all. And they were all amazed, were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now, the second story is going to be the calling of Levi. Uh, uh, Mark's gospel names him as Levi. Apparently, in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9, he's identified as Matthew himself. And it's possible that this is, I think it's likely that this is the same person. And maybe the answer is, is that Levi is his given name, but Matthew is his apostolic name. And so Matthew writes the gospel of Matthew, and he's known as Matthew, and he calls himself Matthew, just like uh, uh, Peter's name was Simon, and Jesus changes his name uh, to Peter. Verse 14 says, As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it came about that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, what's interesting about the story, of course, is that Matthew is being described as as a disciple. Remember, to be a disciple of Jesus means, first off, you follow Jesus and that you are with him. Note that Matthew says he he followed, uh, Jesus said, follow me, and he rose and followed him. But note then, verse 15, there were many tax gatherers and sinners. They were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there there were many of them, and they were following him. So not only is Matthew or Levi being described as a disciple of Jesus, but so are these many tax gatherers and sinners. They're being described as disciples of Jesus. Now, Matthew may have been a a, a customs officer. Uh, um, uh, The city of Capernaum is right on the border between Galilee and Galanitis. As the people traveling from the uh, uh, Orient coming through, maybe going on their way even to Egypt, would come right through this little border town, uh, 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 through Galanitis, into Capernaum. And because of that, it's a border crossing, you're going to need to have customs officers or tax collectors. Now, being a tax collector, of course, in the Jewish world means that you work for Rome. You've conspired with the enemy. Remember, for them, Rome is the enemy. And Matthew is benefiting from Roman occupation. He's working for Rome and being uh, uh, funded by this Roman occupation. The Jews had believed it was actually wrong, morally wrong, to do any business with Gentiles. To do business with a Gentile equates oneself with the thieves and murderers, according to the the Mishnah that was written a couple hundred years later. Uh, uh, Jews were permitted, in fact, by the way, to lie to a tax collector with impunity. You you would not be held accountable at all, even before God, if you lied to a tax collector. Sinners is this category of um, the Pharisees had come up with, with those who showed no interest in the traditions of the scribes or of the Torah. A sinner is someone who's not interested at all in following the law, uh, being faithful to Moses. And therefore, they're not deserving of being considered being righteous or anything at all. They're, they're outsiders. Now, again, the story of Matthew, uh, or Levi, as he's called here. Jesus comes up and passes by the tax office booth and says, follow me. And Matthew jumps up and follows him. 
Again, it makes for good preaching, but I think what we should understand is the fact that Jesus has been doing many miracles and much teaching in the city of Capernaum, and I suppose that he's walked by that tax collector booth a number of times. Matthew or Levi, sitting in the tax collector's booth, probably would like to, hey, I think we should, I should follow him. This is the guy that we've been looking for, but it's too late for me. I, I've already colluded with Rome and I work for the enemy and, and I'm an outcast and there's no way I could ever be considered a disciple of Jesus. So there's no hope for me. So when Jesus walks by and says, follow me, I think Matthew was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that, that, that even I am being given this opportunity to follow Jesus. Now, the opposition to Jesus now by the Pharisees actually begins to increase. The first time they had opposition to Jesus, they spoke to themselves and within their own hearts and didn't even verbalize anything. But now they verbalize their opposition. And their verbalizing is to the disciples. Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? Jesus' answer is real simple. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but it's those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This question of why he's eating with tax gatherers and sinners is going to reappear in the, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15. Why are you eating with tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15. And in each one of the parables, first off, it's a man who lost one sheep and he finds it and uh, he pens up the other 99 and, and goes off and finds this one lost sheep. And then he has a, a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one of them and she finds that one lost coin. And then there's another man who has two sons. And that one son is lost but comes back. And in each case, uh, Jesus says, that which was lost has been found. Rejoice with me. And his answer in, at the end of the parable of what we call the prodigal son is, I had to rejoice and be merry because this brother of yours was lost and has been found. So why are you eating with tax gatherers and sinners? I have to. They, they need a physician. And, and here I am. And they're the ones who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. The third episode now is, of course, going to be with John's disciples. Verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came to Jesus and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Verse 19, Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. This is now the third account of opposition to Jesus. In the first account, they reasoned in their hearts, why is this man forgiving sins, and who does he think he is? In the second account, they approach the disciples and complain about Jesus. Why is he eating with tax gatherers and sinners? Now in this third account, they approach Jesus, but they don't complain about Jesus. They complain about his disciples. Why is it that your disciples do not fast? Now, fasting is one of the three pillars of Judaism, prayer, fasting, and giving. Uh, fasting, of course, is only prescribed in the Old Testament law uh, on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees were more pious, and they fasted twice a week, often Mondays and Thursdays, usually from, from sunrise to sundown. Jesus associates his own coming, however, with a wedding. Weddings were festive occasions with food and much drink, and they often lasted multiple days, uh, seven days typically. 
Um, fasting, of or weddings, of course, remind us of the great eschatological banquet, the, the banquet of the end times. Uh, heaven is described as this great banquet where God uh, eats with his people in the book of Isaiah, as well, of course, as in the book of Revelation. So Jesus doesn't seem to question the practice of fasting. He even affirms that his disciples will someday fast. Verse 20, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, of course, we hear prescriptions on when you fast, do not do as the hypocrites do. Uh, so fasting is an important component of the Christian life, but the reality is, is that when Jesus is present, he's the bridegroom. This is this is a wedding. It's a, it's a happy occasion. It's a food and drink. And so uh, as a result, there's no fasting at this point in time. Now he then responds by saying, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. And, uh, no one puts new wine in the old wineskins. And it seems as this 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 uh, a parable has nothing to do with, with anything at all, but it fits very well. Jesus' answer is this. I'm coming and bringing the new teaching, the, 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 the new covenant, the fulfillment of that which is old, not to replace that which is old, not to, to throw away that which is old, but to fulfill that which is old. And here's the reality. You can't put a new patch on an old garment because that new patch is going to shrink, and when it does, it's going to rip that old garment. And you also can't put new wine in the old wineskins. See, wineskins, when wine ferments, it, it takes these wineskins and they expand. Well, if the old wineskins already expanded and you put new wine into it, when it begins to ferment, it expands even more and it bursts that wineskin. The old wineskins are the Pharisees' interpretations of the law, the Pharisaical understanding and the Pharisaical rules. And Jesus' answer is, my teaching will not fit into your uh, uh, wineskins. Verse 23 now presents us with the fourth confrontation. It came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of, the high, uh, the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the consecrated bread which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he gave it also to those who were with him. And he was saying to them, The Sabbath was, not, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, now the opposition to Jesus intensifies even more. Specifically, they were complaining in the, in the last episode about what the disciples were not doing. Now they're complaining to Jesus about what the disciples are doing. Namely, they're plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Uh, the Jews had, uh, according to the Mishnah, 39 classes of work. You know, the Old Testament law simply says, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees thought it was their responsibility to help the people understand what the law actually meant. After all, when it says thou shalt not work, we need to decide what actually constitutes work. Is this work or is that work? Is this not work or is that not work? So the Pharisees had concluded that there were 39 different categories of, of work, and, and the Jews could not violate them. No work that was, ne that was not necessary could be done. So spitting on the Sabbath day was con considered to be a violation of, of tilling the soil. So the disciples are walking through the grain fields, and they're plucking heads of grain, which actually was permitted. It wasn't actually considered to be stealing. If you are poor, you could not reap crops on the Sabbath day, however, and the Pharisees conclude that the disciples are reaping crops on the Sabbath day. So Jesus responds by saying, listen, you're missing the whole point of what the Sabbath is about. And he begins by appealing to Scripture and says, don't you understand what David did? David went in the temple and he ate bread that was not permitted for him to eat. It was, it was bread for the priests to, to eat. 
And if David can do it, I can do it. Now, imagine what the Pharisees must have been thinking at this point in time. If David can do it, I can do it, is Jesus' way of saying that I'm at least as good, if not better, than David. Um, so if the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath, then it's okay to pluck heads of grain. After all, um, we're eating and taking care of our, our basic needs for the day. Now, this is going to lead the Pharisees to absolute, utter uh, um, anger at Jesus. And so chapter 3 begins by saying, He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, in order that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and it was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So now the opposition of Jesus increases. First they were silent in their hearts, reasoning why is this man forgiving sins. Then they were questioning uh, the disciples why Jesus is eating with tax gatherers and sinners. Then they confront Jesus by what the disciples were not doing. They were not uh, uh, fasting. Then they confront Jesus by what the disciples were doing. They were plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Now they're confronting Jesus himself. Is he going to do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Now the Jews had concluded that this man with a shriveled hand obviously was not a life-threatening injury. It could wait another day. Jesus could have healed him yesterday or he could heal him tomorrow. He doesn't need to heal the man today. But Jesus commands the man to stand up in full view. And he asks the question, what is lawful? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? Now, again, it's supposed that Jesus probably knows what they're thinking because the end result is that they went out to, to seek how they might destroy Jesus. It's, not, it's, not, it's legal to, to save a life, not to kill, and yet the Pharisees in their own heart were seeking to kill Jesus. Uh, one one, one uh, commentator said, The greatest enemy of divine love and justice is not opposition, not even malice, but hardness of heart and indifference to divine grace. The Sabbath was made for man. It was ultimately made, by the way, to protect the, the poor. You, you see the Sabbath day provision of thou shalt rest on the Sabbath day was so that the owners of the field wouldn't work their workers too many days. Give them a day off. Give them a day of rest. It's good. We need to protect justice and protect those who might be exploited on the Sabbath day. Here's this poor man. Sure, he could wait another day, but why? There's no need to wait another day. He can be healed today. That's not a violation of the Sabbath. That's doing justice and mercy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.